Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is Wednesday, November 8th. We're recording this on Sunday the 5th, um, a bit earlier than usual. And so, as always, with the precursor to the show, if the events in the news have changed some of the conditions of what we say, please just bear with us. We, will, we try and edit this thing in real time so that before it goes out to you on Wednesday that it's up to date and current. But sometimes there are conversations that we think are important um, that do include some of out-of-date information, um, certainly nothing that would be classified as misinformation or wrong, but just things that might be out-of-date um, and that we tend to just keep those in. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing this whole spiel at the beginning. I am here this morning with Tammy, and we have a guest today. Uh, it's Tanya Harry. She is the executive director of an organization called Gisha, which is located in Israel, um, and she is going to tell you more about that organization and also give you a perspective, I think a much needed perspective of, and I would say, you know, having the conversation has already happened, what I thought was very sober and clear eyed perspective yeah. of what political opinion and what really just sort of the sense of emergency is within Israel right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Tammy. She was, uh, yeah, I was so like impressed and touched that she was with us because she was also talking about how in Tel Aviv, where she is, they're getting rocket alerts every day. And, you know, it's, right. it's obviously a pretty stressful time for everybody there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I've seen some people share the screenshots of their phones, right? And it's yeah. just an endless notific- wall of notifications of, um, rocket alerts as well. And so, um, yeah, we're thankful for her to come on with us and, uh, we're just going to get right into it. Um, so here is our interview with Tanya Harry. All right, so I'd like to welcome our guest. This is Tanya Harry. Uh, she is the executive director of Gisha, which is also the legal center for freedom of movement. And uh, it is an Israeli human rights organization that promotes freedom of movement and other rights, especially in Gaza. She is a citizen of both Israel and the United States. Tanya, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I uh, I wanted to start, and can you tell us a little bit, just so that the listeners are familiar with, with your work, can you tell us a little bit about what the organization does? Like, I found that that phrase itself, like freedom of movement, was very interesting. Yeah, so it's an interesting time to ask me that question, because what we did and what we will do might be very different things, but I'll say mm-hmm. uh, what we've done until now Um, So we're a legal organization, and what we uh, do is we help individuals, mainly from Gaza, Palestinians from Gaza, but not just, also people outside of Gaza, navigate Israel's permit bureaucracy to travel into and out of the territory and to move goods. And then we do more general research and policy work on the issue of movement and access more broadly. Um, in recognition that movement and access are basically a precursor to everything else, especially in a place like Gaza, which has been under such severe movement restrictions for so long, it affects every aspect of daily life. Um, So when we're successful, we're able to help people reunite with family, reach medical treatment, move goods, um, uh, go to school, (laughs) go to work, etc., um, I, that's it's something that I think here in the West that people don't are starting to understand, but maybe perhaps we're not that familiar with beforehand, which is some of the conditions that were in Gaza. And, you know, we hear phrases now like open air prison, right? Or uh, um, and I think that that is an abstract phrase, even though it's a powerful phrase for a lot of people, because it's like, well, OK, well, what does that mean? And people will point it. Well, I don't know. It seems like they have parks and a beach and everything like that. But, you know, I saw some talks you gave and you talked about how um, things like water access, you know, this is all before October 7th, obviously, but um, and these sort of uh, the way that people's names would be put on information roles held by the Israeli government. Like what, what were the conditions like in Gaza in terms of how people moved around 
whether they could leave, you know, where they could go. Yeah. So we'll try to be brief, but, you know, really it's a world unto itself. But I'll say that, you know, every aspect of, of movement and access over the last certainly 16 years, but also before that, has become like a bargaining chip. Like every really element of, of life that you can imagine has had become a, um, the topic of discussion between Israel and the local authorities in Gaza, but also other interested parties. So Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, the United States, the international community more broadly. And basically, um, I, I'll say in, in a nutshell that, you know, you had access via Israel and access via Egypt. And via Israel, you had criteria for who could receive a permit to travel through the Israeli-controlled crossing at the north, mainly medical patients and their companions, uh, people traveling in the most extreme family emergencies, um, and also some workers. And... In terms of goods, most goods coming into the Strip in recent years, except for a very long list of items that were blocked. And that kind of movement regime was meant basically to keep people's heads above water, um, so to keep them alive, but to prevent them from thriving. The idea was to be applying pressure all of the time, but not so much that it sort of burst. And I guess we'll talk about that a bit more later. In terms of Egypt's policy in the last years, um, it was allowing some goods into Gaza and also allowing some travel out of Gaza, but also its own sort of regime of who could travel and how and in what conditions. Um, and it became a little bit easier to travel in recent years, but people would have to pay uh, to do that. And so that those fees were really prohibitive for most of the population. So you have overall, basically, when people say it's, a, it's an open-air prison, it's because a very, very small fraction of the population could actually travel. Um, I was curious, Tony, if you could elaborate a little bit on the kind of record system and that access system in the, the context of Right now, I mean, one of the things that I know Jay and I have been really interested in is just the the journalistic access piece. And at a local press conference, you were, were talking about um, this issue, for example, of the fatalities in Gaza and how contested that's been. And obviously, in places like the New York Times, we've seen things like, you know, according to the Hamas health ministry, right, this sort of um, skepticism and contestation of, of the facts coming out of Gaza. How does that sort of thing, the reporting of the present, relate to this information access piece and the, the registry in particular in Israel? Yeah. Um, so I'll say regarding, um, you know, journalists, first of all, that no foreign journalists are being allowed into the Strip. And it happened to be that on October 7th, we were at the end of a kind of long holiday week, um, and it was the weekend. So it really happened to be just that by, by that chance that no foreign journalists were on the ground at the time. And then since then, Israel has not allowed any in. So I think that that is also one of the things that we're looking at right now is that, you know, all of the information coming out of Gaza mm -hmm. is through Palestinian journalists, brave Palestinian journalists that are trying to get the word out. And then simultaneously an effort to sort of undermine the credibility of those same journalists, um, even though they're the only ones really telling the story from inside. Um, in terms of the Palestinian population registry, so that's a, a big sort of term that I think doesn't make a lot of sense in other contexts, but I'll just say that um, since Israel began uh, occupying Gaza and the West Bank in 1967, it basically held on to a population registry. Think of it as like the census in the United States that takes a kind of an account of everyone, where they live, you know, how many children a person has, etc. So that registry has stayed in Israel's control. Um, in the Oslo Peace Accords, control over the registry was meant to be passed to the Palestinian Authority, but it mainly stayed in the hands of Israel in terms of Israel having the final word for what's written there. The PA makes changes in the registry, and then Israel has to approve them. So even every death that is reported, Israel would then have to mark in its sort of copy of the registry to say, indeed, this person has passed away. We recognize that. 
um, et cetera. And so it does give Israel a lot of control over, you think about who is thought of as a living resident of the territory, who, who essentially right. exists, like who is Palestinian. Um, and you do have inside of Gaza in recent years, many people who did enter via Egypt. So you had some family reunification most of those people would be dual nationals they or, or, or nationals of another country. But you also have a lot of people who didn't have any nationality. They're totally unregistered. And Israel didn't register them, and therefore they don't exist. So there is a category of people who are just simply statusless. Um, but for the most part, you know, th there there is a recognition of most of the people. They have Palestinian ID cards, and therefore when people are reported as having passed away, Israel would recognize that. And, and it really, frankly, it's not in anyone's interest for people to be marked as having passed away, because if that is the case, they'll never be able to get a permit to enter Israel or the West Bank again, right? Israel would say, what do you mean that person is no longer alive? So right. that whole um, idea of the registry is really pertinent right now to the question of, of, of deaths being uh, registered. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about uh, what life was like as somebody who worked for a advocacy organization for Palestinians before October 7th, you know, within Israel. It's something that I thought about when we asked you to be on the show, which was that, um, yeah, well, what, what was it like? Is it, was there a lot of, you know, is it something where people like, oh, good, you know, good job within certain progressive <laughs> social circles, or perhaps like, you know, like something that was like, <laughs> something that where you're sometimes you don't even want to bring it up. Like, what, what was it like before October 7th? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, it's always been um, not popular, let's say at the very <laughs> best. Um, I would say that a lot of the society would look at us either with sort of curiosity, like the best reaction that we could get is maybe people thinking we're naive, um, mm -hmm. you know, and at the worst end of it, that we're traitors, that we, uh, you know, that we care more about Palestinians than we do about our own people. Um, and, and yeah, you, even maybe worse than that. Um, but I would say there was still a, a range and that we have certain audiences, of course, who are supportive of our work. And, and I would say even beyond that, many people in, in the middle of the, that range would be people that maybe on first glance would be suspicious. But once you start talking to them about your work, um, then they would say, oh, hey, that makes sense. I mean, I, I always give the example of my grandmother, who I love dearly. She's 90 years old. She's she's like very, very small now. Um, and I always say like, she's, I think, one of the most racist people in the country, <laughs> unfortunately, but I still love her. So I find, try to find a way to like understand her and reach her. And even, even her, like when I would give her examples from my work, um, it would suddenly seem to her really obvious that it would actually be in Israel's interest, if not, you know, from a moral perspective to allow people to just live their lives as normally as possible in the circumstances. So she could, she could get on board for allowing a student to go study at a university or, you know, making sure that there's enough, uh, you know, uh, construction materials uh, for people to be able to build their homes. I mean, it's so, it's so basic when you really break it down that we would have support from uh, people who at first would be suspicious. And I know that this is like a, changing situation but what what is it what is it like now to yeah. be yeah. affiliated but you know just be the also just be the executive director of a of an organization so now we're in really the after times i mean i think that we really don't even know yet what it means to be to be who we are to be gisha um it's really hard to describe how unprecedented this situation is, given that, yes, of course, there have been other military operations, many of them. Um, unfortunately, um, there have been, you know, terror attacks, uh, you know, of, of great magnitude. But what we're seeing now is really just so horrific. I mean, I can't, I can't think of any way to describe it other just other than just to say we're in a really, really dark, dark period. Um, 
for for the region. And so I think that if those, you know, those people who viewed us with hostility now are espousing views that are much more violent, um, much more destructive. And and I think that we're in a bit of a quiet before the storm, maybe, that we don't exactly know how we'll be seen and perceived. Um, we are, of course, getting some attacks on social media and things like that. But um, I, I do think that it's a really, really sensitive place to be in right now, to be talking about, even just talking about civilians in Gaza, even just to say what seemed to me like really simple words, like there are human beings in Gaza, um, there are children in Gaza. It's really, um, you know, seen to be like, you, you know, you're supporting Hamas if you say that, or even just, yeah, if you support ceasefire, God forbid, uh, you're you're supporting terror. So I think that we really don't know yet what it's going to be like to operate in, in the weeks and months ahead. And do you think that's a, a sort of thing that's generally true for civil society in Israel? Because I think I've been curious about, you know, coming off of the, the protests around the the reforms in the judiciary, not reforms, the changes to the judiciary and, um, you know, all of the democratic protests. And then you were already sort of in an environment where there were concerns about just doing, you know, being able to say certain things, being able to operate in, in, in certain activist circles. And so, um, yeah, so is it is it, I guess, like, what are you guys expecting in terms of like NGO culture, in terms of, um, you know, the sort of constitution of the Israeli left? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. Um, you know, there were a lot of questions that were being asked by broad swaths of the general public about like, what is a democracy and what does it mean? And I think that we did find unlikely supporters among the protest movement, not people who would agree with anything we say, but they would at least, you know, defend the right for us to exist and for us to say those things. And, you know, so we had um, what, what, what was referred to as the anti-occupation block. And we're like, we have a corner on the street where the protests are and us and many other organizations and just individuals who are against the occupation, you know, we'd stand on our corner. And in the beginning of the protest movement, people would spit at us or scream at us. Um, there would be some extra police presence in that area. And then as time went on, it felt like, okay, people would just, they were just used to it. You know, maybe they would be like, oh, that noise of the anti-occupation block, but they would at least tolerate it. Um, and so I don't know what'll happen now. Um, I would hope that those same people who are tolerant of us would still find those threads of, in a democracy, you don't necessarily agree with everyone. You just agree agree with the you know basic right of association. But I I am not that optimistic. I do think that we'll at least go through a really difficult period where our ability to operate and to function within society will be severely curtailed. Um, there's already, you know, discussions and sort of reactions to things that we and other organizations are putting out into the public sphere of, you know, reactions like, why do these people still exist? Why are they still allowed to operate? Um, so it's becoming even more sort of, you know, um, aggressive in the, in the rhetoric against us that I assume at some point will turn into actual, you know, legislation. Uh, to stop us from operating and and maybe worse. I mean, we are in an ecosystem of other organizations. It's not just Gisha. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's a lot of other organizations that are operating. And all of us, frankly, are having like a moment of reckoning of who, how do we reach society right now? Um, how, how do we even ourselves process what just happened and what is still happening? Um, but I think for Gisha, you know, because we are talking specifically about Gaza and we're advocating for movement, which is the exact thing that led to these horrific massacres. I mean, we didn't advocate for that kind of movement, obviously, but the fact that people were able to get out of Gaza and, and perpetrate these, these massacres is so fresh in everyone's minds mm. that the, automatic reaction has been, there will never be anyone from Gaza that comes into Israeli territory again. 
So it's really like hitting at the at the essence of who we mm. are as an organization. Hearing you talk about this sort of anti-occupation corner that you had on the street um, made me think about here in the West, We, I think a lot of people are taking all of this in through social media, right? Like it's, uh, and we see videos, and videos are very powerful. Um, and I think one thing that tends to circulate here that I think is, you know, images of people within Israel calling for a ceasefire, like small protests of mostly young people. Um, and that these, I think, for people who are on the left, or even, I don't even think it's really the left here anymore. It's just people, because most of the American public supports some sort of ceasefire, that they give a sense of, okay, even within Israel, there's a movement for ceasefire. I suppose that, like, you know, just as a journalist, I find myself somewhat sometimes like being like, well, okay, how big is this movement? How is it dealt with? Um, can you just give us some context there? Like, you know, like, what are these small protests we see? And then, you know, like how many, how much of the public opinion do they represent? So the protests are really small, I hate to say. Um, I assume that they would be much bigger if people felt safe to go. And I'll say I haven't attended yet um, because I am feeling unsafe about, mm -hmm. about standing outside and publicly calling for a ceasefire. So it's a really small and a brave group of people that is, that is out there. Um, I do think that if you take away the sort of political association of left and right and center, there are other people who are calling for a ceasefire, namely um, uh, the, the, the families of the hostages. Uh, so maybe some of them are not calling for an outright ceasefire. They're calling for some sort of pause or they're calling for negotiations. I mean, their primary concern right now is that their loved ones could be harmed in the really heavy bombardments um, that Israel is, is you know, undertaking in Gaza. So I do think that there are, again, unlikely allies that maybe would cross the street and come to that protest if it wasn't so heavily associated with this radical left or a radicalized left that is seen as so, so bad in, in Israeli society. Um, but I do think that, yeah, at the moment, unfortunately, the discourse that a ceasefire would only result in, you know, Hamas reconfiguring or becoming stronger or doing what they did again is so powerful in Israeli society um, that that you really don't have a lot of support at this stage for a ceasefire. Could you talk a little bit about in on the Israeli left and in the circles that you're running in that connection between the ceasefire demand and the bring them home demand of really focusing on the hostages? Um, I think there's maybe like a little bit of a disconnect or difference between the way that some of this is articulated on the left in the United States. And I know you're a binational person, so you're obviously following all of these discourses. But in Israel, it seems like leftists are, are more pushing that 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 connection. And, um, you know, I think you probably saw like in the United States, there's been in some cities, the posters of the hostages and the way that that's been mm -hmm. this sort of like rhetorical uh, point of like rhetorical disagreement and fighting. Um, but in Israel, this this both like do the ceasefire, bring them home. Can we use the hostages as a way of talking about some sort of peace right now? It seems stronger. So, yeah. So like how is what is that articulation for activists right now? Yeah. I think I think from what I've seen and what I'm hearing in 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 our community is that it's a really organic connection um because it's making the connection between civilians on both sides. Um so I think for for most people it's pretty clear that you know Hamas came in they perpetrated these massacres um against civilians and soldiers but you know mainly civilians and that it took hostages again some soldiers but also mainly civilians mm -hmm. and and um and what we're arguing for is that in Israel's actions and response and its general day-to-day -day behavior vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians it can't target civilians it cannot to turn off the water supply or the electricity supply because by this very by its very nature that action targets civilians so to me it seems 
you know, being coherent in your principles and your, and in your approach has to be, um, you know, to calling for protection of civilians on both sides. And I would say that, you know, beyond that and beyond a sort of rational discourse that we can have as activists or as, you know, certainly for me and my role as running an organization, I mean, I do think that the emotions are really, really high. Um, and, you know, we're talking about 240 people whose stories are being told over and over again within Israeli society. I mean, the nightly news, you hear nothing about residents of Gaza, mm -hmm. but you hear multiple stories per night about all of these different families, what happened to them, who's inside, um, who was killed of the family members. And you really, it's really like humanizing all of these stories. So beyond just the posters, like we know these people already by name. Right. Um, yeah. And I would add to that, the, the country is really small. So everyone knows somebody affected. Right. Um, some people have multiple people that they know who were affected. I know mul multiple people who were going to like multiple funerals. Um, so that's also something mm -hmm. that I think in our community, it's sort of easy to be seeing a bigger picture because you're also personally affected by, by these things that happened. Mm. Right. I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, this, idea of what the nightly news there is saying. Um, and it's a question that I think that I've had the almost, you know, at least for the past three weeks, which is within Israel, like when you talk to, I don't want to say the average citizen, but when you talk to somebody who has a, is, is listening to the news, obviously is riveted by this question, perhaps has, you know, most likely has had some sort of personal connection. Um, what is the articulation of what is trying to be achieved by by these bombardments, by these bombings, by you know, um, you know, by what is mass civilian casualties? Like, I think not to draw an analogy, but just in a similarly confusing time, the after nine eleven with the war on terror, um, there was a clear articulation that was vague in its sense, but clear in its con continuation of messaging. It's like we're going to, we're going to end terrorism, you know, basically right. like, uh, right. we're going to root them out. We're going to find them in their caves and we're going to, you know, uh, and then they would show some sort of like high technology missile that can like go through a cave and blow up the cave or something like that. That was the messaging that we got here, right? Like, um, very vague, right? What does it mean to end terror, but constant? So what, what is, what is the message that is, that is being put out there for what the purpose of all of this is? Yeah, it's really, really similar, eerily similar, I have to say, because it's really a very simplified message of, you know, we're, we're going to get them, we're going to root out Hamas, we're going to destroy them, uh, we're going to win. You know, there's a lot of language. I mean, everywhere you go around, around the country, too, you see billboards and signs. I mean, it really... I was I wasn't in the US uh right after 9/11 but I came back about 9 months later and it was still, you know, flags right. everywhere and signs and so it's really bringing me back to that time. Yeah. Um and it's a really simplified message and it's one that's like yeah, if you're not thinking about it too hard, it's easy to rally behind especially after this horrible thing that happened. If somebody tells you we're going to root them out. You're like, yeah, sounds good. Go for it. Um, and I do think that there's an added layer. I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but, you know, just having lived here for uh, the past 16 years, I I do think it's natural in in most places around the world that like you, you want to feel safe and you want to believe that your government or the authorities are like acting in your best interest, unless, unless you've been led to question it and you're, uh, you know, actively critical thinking about it. You're just kind of like, well, I need to sleep at night. So like, hopefully the police are doing their job or hopefully the government is taking care of my needs. And, um, I think for, for the progressive left, we question everything and we have a lot of proof for why that's not working. But I think here people, have invested just all of their faith in the government. So when they tell them something like that, they're not necessarily thinking critically about it. And they're not looking at the images, the few images that they might be seeing out of Gaza and being like, hmm, wait a minute, that doesn't look precision guided to me. Um, or, or how are they blocking fuel and 
you know, that's only affecting Hamas and not affecting the hospitals. You're really not seeing that questioning or that discourse at all on uh, the news. And, and it's, you know, I think that beyond the horrors of what we're seeing being done in Gaza, that layer for me is like really difficult to process because you just see people um, you know, turning, turning like a blind eye in this really chilling way and just not acknowledging their own responsibility for what's happening. Uh, and that's the other piece of it that I didn't mention, which is, um, it's all, if something bad is happening, then it's all Hamas's fault, right? So if civilians are dying, um, and we'll even question those death numbers, it's not our fault, it's Hamas's fault. So you have people having this process of like really just not having any responsibility for what's happening. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it, that does sound quite similar in terms of, you know, what happened after 9-11 and, and especially the rallying around political figures who up until that point had been quite unpopular. You know, Rudy <laughs> yeah. Giuliani, mayor of New York, was wildly unpopular. Um the before 9-11 and then became America's <laughs> the mayor. Too, yeah. Right. And then Bush as well. And that there was a rallying around there. Has that taken place as well? That there is just a, you know, even people who might have been critical, people who might have really been upset about the about the courts issue that they that there is now just a general, okay, we this is our guy and we kind of have to support him um like uh, throughout Israeli society. I think it's not as 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 clear cut as it maybe was in the U.S. Um, for for a few different reasons. One is that um, you know Israel, of course, really prides itself on like intelligence gathering and security and being kind of security minded. So there are a lot of people who are looking at what happened on October seventh and they're furious. Um, you know, it's called like the debacle. It's like the big failure of the security establishment um, uh, to, to see this coming and to do something mm -hmm. about it and to prevent it. So there is a lot of anger and there are calls, and I think they're growing also for Netanyahu to resign, um, for him to take greater responsibility for what happened. So I don't think that it's necessarily rallying around a person or even certain people, but there's definitely a rallying around the war itself. Like the war itself is sort of personified in that sense okay. of like, yeah. we can't question the goals of the war. Um, yeah, that's untouchable. Could you talk about militarism in Israeli society and, and how, because I, I guess like just, um, I sort of know the bare outlines of, you know, there's essentially universal conscription. Um, I'm, I'm here in Korea right now, and we have that too in South Korea. Um, and, and also this kind of border condition, you know? And so I think when, like, I've been thinking a lot about how militarism is so baked into South Korean society, everyone sort of has a relationship to it. I imagine it's even more in Israel because the conscription is for women as well as men. Um, and does that lead to a situation where when you have these sorts of situations, I know this one's unprecedented, but you know, you've worked on this issue and been through many different rounds of terrorism and revenge and, you know, these cycles of violence that we're caught in. But do ordinary people, because they have a relationship to the Israeli defense forces, like are they sort of poised to root for, you know, is kind of like whatever the military and the government say that needs to be done or, yeah, I guess just like how saturated is that feeling of, well, we are kind of like all part of this military machine. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that it's, um, yeah, the universal conscription is really powerful because every, everybody has served, I mean, almost everyone. So it's again, you know, this idea that, um, it, it, you know, there always, there's this like refrain of where the, it's, it's the most moral army in the world. Mm -hmm. And like people b believe that. And even more than that, they really want to believe it because it's, it's about who we are as a society. Totally, yeah. And if anybody questions that, like, God forbid, what do you mean we're the most moral army in the world? Um, so I think that there are a lot of layers of that. I mean, you know, it's hard sometimes to give an analysis of things without sounding like you're justifying it or defending it. So I just want to make clear, like, I think that anyone in any society should be really critically minded and that it's okay to 
you know, criticize your government or, or, or think kind of more critically about what's being done in your name. Um, so I, I, even as I'm explaining it, I, I hope it doesn't come off as sort of saying, I, I understand so. it. All, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I do think that, that it's, um, again, because there's universal, universal conscription, everyone knows somebody who is serving in the army um, at any given time. And so you, people will have their children, their friends, children, their siblings, cousins, you know, it's, it's again, it's everywhere. So you don't have that. um, Maybe from outside people can say, okay, there's civilians and then there's soldiers, but for society, it's like the soldiers are, are, our, our brothers, our cousins, our exactly. friends, it's us. Uh, so it's, it is really um, enmeshed and, and yeah, it's also part of the system, I think of, of reducing critical thinking of reducing thinking about, about things. So it's like, you're not allowed to say anything about the army. Um, yeah. You're a traitor if you do. Yeah. When you, I, I was curious about um, your your um, moving to Israel and kind of, you know, the decisions that that you made to work within the civil infrastructure in Israel. Um, you know, we're obviously coming off of these enormous protests all around the world. Um, I went to a smallish one in Seoul, um, but some of you know, people kind of talk about what they're protesting, I think, in different ways. And for some people, they have this kind of vision of, um, you know, there will be a single national state or, um, you know, or that um, Israel will just make a lot of concessions to, uh, you know, to what Palestinian liberation means. And um, I guess most of the people that I'm familiar with who do the sort of work that you do are very skeptical of the Israeli state, you know, and, and, but you are kind of, you're making these sort of, um, you're kind of situating yourself to be able to work within the Israeli civil uh, society, but for Palestinian liberation. So, yeah, I guess I'm just curious about, about that personally, like going from the United States to, to do that. And what does that mean your relationship to the state of Israel is and, and this, your sort of like vision for the, the future there? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was born in Israel. My parents are um, Israeli and I, I moved here um thinking actually that I would just stay a little while and then go back to the U.S. I didn't really have intention to move here. And then I actually learned about the work of Gisha soon after I came and just really connected with this concept of of movement and access. I mean, you know, for somebody who had grown up taking it for granted, I just, my mind was sort of blown when I realized what was happening in Gaza and that you had, um, you know, at the time it wasn't, now it is, uh, you know, 2.2 million people just living in this situation for years and years what they, where they don't have access just felt to me as an Israeli and an American, like I have this double complicity that I have to do whatever I can to change the situation. Mm. Um, and I would say that, you know, both because my life's work since then has focused on this issue um, and maybe just who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit agnostic about what comes after this in terms of what is, what is liberation look like for the people who live in the region or what does self-determination look like for the people who live in the region? I, I literally, I'm not even just saying it because it's outside of the mandate of my organization, which it is. It's also just how I've come to sort of see the the situation. Like I just really believe very strongly in universal values and principles. And I believe everyone should be free and safe. Um, and how that looks on the ground, whether it's a one state or two states or a confederation at this point doesn't really matter to me. Um, and I think that if we can commit ourselves first to the principles, then maybe we can find the solution instead of trying to find a solution without necessarily committing to the principles. So that's sort of where I'm at mm. with it. Tammy mentioned this before, but you participated, maybe I mentioned it, but you know, you, you participated in this talk about responsible coverage of Gaza, right? And I think it was mostly directed at Western journalists. Uh, Tammy and I are both Western journalists, even though we're Asian. It's like, I don't know. I'm, sorry. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Sorry. Um, 
what do you see as some of the problems right now, right? Like, um, what are, what are, what is being misconstrued? Cause you know, this is obviously within the United States and especially within our industry has become, I cannot remember a bigger crisis in terms of how people think about yeah. the press and it has reverberations beyond just like the small insular, insular world of journalists, right? Um, it has, there has been a longstanding crisis of people's trust in the mainstream media in this country that predates Trump, but obviously was accelerated by that. And that um, there is a growing divide, I think, right? That there is a sense where young people probably do not trust anything that they read from us, right? Um, and that they find other sources. And that every mistake that is made by uh, or even when it's not a mistake, when it's just something that goes against, you know, um, some the narrative that people have that the blame goes almost immediately to the press. It's almost like this meta narrative that encapsulates every problem within American society, that it gets blamed on the media in this way that, you know, as a journalist, I think is generally like a bit overblown, but obviously is, has some truth to it as well. Um, and, I think that uh, that that this what is happening in Gaza is basically the crisis point for journalism in America, even though obviously of all the things it is not that important. Right. But like what from your perspective, like what what are things that Western journalists are are can improve upon or like can do in a more ethical way? Yeah. I think that one of the things that really has come up strongly in recent weeks is, uh, you know, the questioning of the death count um, by the by the Ministry of Health in Gaza, and you know, there there may be reasons for that. Like, I don't think that it's necessarily that that I would say we have to one hundred percent believe everything they say. Right. Um, but I guess for me, what jumped out when I started seeing that was that like nobody says anything about the Israeli uh, the Israeli sources that are reporting on how many people died in Israel or how many people were killed in Israel. And, and in fact, you know, when, when I looked at this more closely, I realized that actually the numbers are, are sort of fluid and they've been fluid as, um, you know, they're undergoing forensics, like, and finding more bodies and like, so actually the number is changing, not because anyone's lying about it, but because this is like a giant crime scene that is yeah, still right. in discovery. And yet everyone around the world unquestioningly wrote the numbers and didn't, didn't write any caveats about like, this is a developing story or this is the Israeli run, you know, ministry of health <laughs> or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so I think that that just really jumped out at me that, you know, we're sort of trained uh, in the West, whatever that means, um, I think, to not believe Palestinians and other 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 groups. And I'm not limiting to that, of course, but I think that there's this inherent questioning of Palestinians' versions of the story, how they tell the story is not right. Um I, I I tweeted the other day that I had been in a meeting with a group of European diplomats, and one of them said that um, you know Palestinians aren't effective in European capitals because they're too emotional. And I thought, like, wow, how can he say that kind of thing? Like, I'm very emotional right now, and I'm not Palestinian. And I know Israelis are telling their story with a lot of emotion, as they should, because yeah. it's really crazy what just happened. So, but it was just that idea of like Palestinians need to tone it down when they're talking about what's happening to them. And um, so I think that I don't blame mainstream media for everything. I actually think that there's a lot to be said about institutions and the process that institutions go through to protect their own reputations, I think is something that can maybe lead in some cases to more credibility. Um, right. I think of that for us as Gisha, I mean, we check everything we put out multiple times. We have multiple people reading every single text um, because we care about the, the, the reputation of the organization and its ability to continue operating. Whereas if you're just somebody reporting on the ground, you might not have those same sets of, um, uh, you know, things in your mind when you're reporting. So I'm not against the mainstream media in general, but I do think that all of us really need to 
check our biases um, and check how we're reporting and what kind of language we're using. And I think Palestinians have taught us that in the last years of not using passive language and, you know, checking where the agency is for things that are being done. Um, so, so I feel like I myself have learned a lot from that and to just try to be more conscious of, of, of what I'm writing. Um, I am curious about, I think that part of the way in which the world is, I've said this in prior episodes, so forgive me for repeat listeners, but, you know, I think the way in which a lot of people are witnessing this is through seeing images of dead children, which are, you know, nothing is more powerful in the world, you know, I mean, uh, you know, photographs of children being burned by napalm help you know, change the sentiment of Vietnam War in America. It's been, uh, and I was wondering if those images are being seen inside of Israel, right? You said that people aren't really seeing the thing that's that the rest of the world are seeing, um, like, uh, because I would imagine that even within that those images are not, uh, unless you really think that people who are within are incapable of feeling any type of empathy or something. I don't believe that, you know, like I think that the image of a dead child or a parent sort of pulling a dead child out of the rubble is going to be powerful in any context. Um, uh, are people just not, are, are people not seeing those, those images? Um, or is there, are they seeing less of them within Israel? Do you think? I think that it's, yeah, I think it's, it's like multi multiple layers here. It's first of all, they're not seeing the images. Um, they're not coming up organically in their feeds. People are really kind of isolated. And so I think that the, the images really just aren't coming up. And then in the news, certainly, if anything, you might have pictures of destruction, but it's like sterilized. It's like just landscapes. Right. Um, and and so that's one thing. And then, then, then the other layer of it is, you know, uh, about the question of responsibility. So if they do see the images somewhere, They'll still say, well, it's unfortunate. They might feel sad about it, but it's not, it's not our fault as Israelis. It's Hamas's fault. And so you're, you're just seeing people really able to dissociate themselves from responsibility for the situation. And that's actually been something that we've been trying to do in our work in Gisha all of these years, because, you know, the whole discourse in Israel about Gaza is we left, um, we left the Gaza Strip right, in right. 2005. Mm. We disengaged. We, we no longer have responsibility for what happens there. And so a lot of our work would just be trying to show, you know, before we're even ending the occupation, we're just trying to show that it's there. Like that is most of our work all of the time. And I think now, even though you have the, you know, Israeli uh, officials going on, on TV and they're saying, we're not going to turn the electricity back on. We are not going to allow fuel in. We will not allow food into the Gaza. People still are not really comprehending that those then are choices that the Israeli government is making that then have an impact on civilians in Gaza. They're seeing it from the perspective of, well, Hamas could release the hostages if they wanted to and end this now. Or they could stop, you know, fighting or they could stop sending rockets or whatever. So it's again, it's all pushed back onto Hamas or, you know, onto the Palestinians, um, which which, again, I think is just a really uh, a crisis of accountability that exists in general. But I mean, in, in Israeli society, it's it's. Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's horrifying. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm really, we're trying to think of like, how do we break that, uh, right now uh, and try to get through to people. Mm -hmm. I was curious, um, you, you talked a little bit about, uh, the observation you made about the, the European diplomats and, um, you know, I think we've talked a lot about the kind of the United States angle, but what do you see as the the sort of global pressure points around this conflict? I mean, and I know that because your organization obviously is sort of based in international human rights and humanitarian law, that that wording around freedom movement. I know you've testified in front of different United Nations bodies. Um, the Security Council has been totally ineffectual, it seems like, with this. And, you know, the Jordanian ceasefire um, resolution went through, but it's non-binding. You know, I, I just wonder, um, yeah, is this a moment where you're feeling 
pessimistic or about the framework that you're working in? What you know, and and who are are sort of the global targets to try to get some movement around this issue? Yeah, right now? I would say that really the like the U.S. is just the only the only uh, you know player that is relevant here. Um, mm-hmm. So so you know us uh you know members of congress obviously the administration i think have a huge role to play but i do think and i'm encouraged i mean i'm not terribly optimistic right now even though i'm normally an optimistic person so that's also my own crisis within a crisis here but i i do think that um the protests that i've seen around the world are really um inspiring and i would encourage people to just keep it up. It is, that is something that's been reported in the press here. Um, and, and I think it's signaling to, you know, Israeli society that like, Hey, something is going on. People are, are, you know, um, they're, they're active on this. They're not going to forget it. They're not going to let go. And I think that, um, you know, the Netanyahu government is counting on people sort of getting tired or turning away, um, so I would say that that's really important to keep up. Um, but yeah, it is a moment where we're sort of wondering, like, where where is everyone? You know, why is it that only one uh, senator has come out calling for a ceasefire? Like, to me, it just seems so basic. It's so obvious yeah. to just stop these atrocities from continuing. Um, so I do think that there's a moment of reckoning, but I also think well, what else do we have? Like, we have to keep trying. And I think as activists, it's true in every setting. Like, you don't know where that breaking point is. You're sort of chipping away at the wall and you don't know when the cracks are going to connect and bring the wall down. So, like, all you can do is just sit there with your little hammer and just keep keep chipping away. So I think that we will try to continue to have those conversations. And I do think that unfortunately, as things get more and more dire in Gaza, I, I do want to believe that people will um, will act and will sort of wake up to see that what's happening. It's bad for everybody. It's not just bad for Palestinians. It's not just bad for Israelis. I mean, it's, you know, the prices that people are paying around the world for this are just getting higher and higher. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for listening to the show. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at timetosaygoodbyepod at gmail.com um, or you can reach us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Until next week. Uh, see you later. See ya.